requested a meal. I'm ready for my close-up. I should come up sometimes, see me. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Pretty sure. Stuff that dreams are made of. Hi, Wendy here. Before we start off our episode today, I want to remind everybody to check us out on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok. Also, please leave a rating or comment on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. You can find us on social media by simply searching Silver Screen Time Machine, and please make sure you follow our podcast, Silver Screen Time Machine, anywhere you get your podcast. Thank you and enjoy the episode. Hello, and welcome again to Silver Scream Time Machine, Wendy's Classic Film Review. I'm very excited today because we are getting in our time machine, and we are going back to 1967, and we are talking about this wonderful film, The Dirty Dozen, and I'm very excited because I have a very special guest today on the podcast. It is Dwayne Epstein. He is actually the author of a book called Killing Generals. Can't see me if you're listening on the podcast, but I am holding up a copy of the book. It may be upside down or backwards because of the Zoom, but I'm holding up a copy of Dwayne's book, which is excellent. It talks about the production of The Dirty Dozen, so no better person to discuss The Dirty Dozen than Dwayne Epstein. So thank you so much, Dwayne, for coming on the show. I really appreciate you doing the podcast today. Oh, thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate being here. And do you want to talk a little bit about yourself? You also, of course, were the author of Lee Marvin Point Blank, which is how I first learned about you because I really love that biography of Lee Marvin. So if you want to talk a little bit about some of the things you've done, maybe some of the things you have coming up, feel free. Yeah, I've got a couple of things going on. I recently signed a contract for a new book, a biography of the actor Roy Scheider, which I'm currently working on. Yeah, fascinating guy. Great actor. Absolutely wonderful actor. Was in some of my favorite films. Also, I'm starting a new column on a website called Hollywood.com, and I'm writing articles for that website, and they seem to be getting a lot of hits, and they're very popular. The most recent one I did that I'm very proud of is I talked to the editor at that website about what a big fan of Steve McQueen I am, mm. and he said, you want to write a, an article about him? And I said, how about doing it about the films that he made that weren't as well known but are still just as worthy of people's attention, go ahead. And I did. And it's proving to be very popular. It's called The Seldom Seen Steve McQueen. Seldom Seen Steve McQueen. Yeah, on Hollywood.com. And there's one, that uh, another article, that is the introduction to the Dirty Dozen book. Awesome. Killing it with the Dirty Dozen. Oh, awesome. So everybody should check that out, hollywood.com. Okay, on to our film, The Dirty Dozen. This film was nominated for four Oscars, Best Supporting Actor for John Cassavetes, Best Sound, Best Film Editing, and it won the Oscar for Best Sound Effects. Why Best Sound Effects? Do you have an opinion on that? Well, I would think it was because of the the explosive finale Mm. and the sound effects that were used for that, that were... Pretty, pretty damn impressive off the top of my head. I don't know what the other nominees were in that category, but I do know that the sound in the Dirty Dozen, especially with the finale of the Chateau, was really loud. The (laughs) producer of the film, whom I interviewed, a gentleman named Ken Ken Hyman, Mm. he told me that 
they shot the movie in England and it was about 20 miles south, I think, of London. And they were getting reports from people going, oh my God, is it the Blitz again? (laughs) People in London thought they were getting bombed. (laughs) Oh, the poor people in London, they already had to deal with enough bombings. Right. So in terms of why it may have won for best sound editing, that might be it. So that's John Pointer. Is that how I say his name? John Pointer was the fellow that did the sound effects. Best film editing was Mike. Mike Luciano. Mike Luciano. He worked with Robert Aldridge on Mm -hmm. almost all of his films. Yeah, Robert Aldridge, he was kind of particular. He had a crew he liked to work with generally. And well, I read in your book, he was a little unhappy because coming to England, he couldn't bring his American crew. And he was a little frustrated with the British cinematographer because they moved a little bit more slowly than he generally would like. Well, I'll tell you, from what I had heard, I did interview Aldridge's regular cinematographer, a gentleman named Joe Byrock, right. who worked on all of his, most most of his films. And Byrock told me that when he worked with Aldridge, Aldridge was used to doing twenty setups a day. Wow! But in England, four setups a day—a very frustrating for him. Yeah, I imagine. He was a very much of a maverick, Robert Aldridge, and he was very opinionated. And so consequently, that led to a lot of frustration on his part. Yeah. But you got the movie done. Yeah. And plus the weather, of course, England is not the best weather. That also was causing some trouble with production. So uh, there was a numerous... Yes, they, called, they called it the bloody rain <laughs> because they would drive 20 miles to the location and boom, it would start raining. Yeah. So they'd have to wait. And there was a lot of ripple effects that happened because of that going over production with some of the actors that we can talk about as we go along here. So this is based on the novel The Dirty Dozen by E.M. Nathanson? Yes. Okay. Yeah. But you say in your book that you believe that possibly some of the ideas may have come from Russ Meyer, who is also a film producer. Talk a little bit about <laughs> yeah. what Russ Meyer had seen that gave Nathanson this idea. Okay. Well, I'll put it to you like this. When I started this project, I was given a very limited time. I had to hit the ground running. I have a friend, a lady named Beverly Gray, and she had interviewed Nathanson, I believe in 2015. He passed away the next year. Mm-hmm. And when I told her what I was working on, the interview she did with him never got published. So it's never been seen or heard. And she asked me if I wanted the interview on, because she had it on CD. And I'm like, God, Beverly, I would kill for that. <laughs> she gave it to me. So that was a major exclusive. And what happened was, I got the full story from Nathanson himself on how he came to write The Dirty Dozen. And it's like I mentioned, it's all in the book. The idea came from Russ Meyer, the filmmaker known as the king of sleaze and the king of sexploitation. (laughs) He had been a war photographer and he was in uh, Patton's Command. I don't want to give away too much of that because it's a fascinating story. And according to Nathanson, when he heard the story, He said the hackles on the back of his neck stood up. Because the movie was so popular and it came out so many years ago, there were many, many urban legends about Dirty Dozen. And one of them is the fact that many people think it was based on fact. It wasn't. It was complete fiction by Nathanson. But during the research, he discovered enough information to create the fictional story. And when he wrote it, when he wrote the novel, he didn't have a finish to it. 
when it's when it was sold to MGM. Yeah. So this was originally supposed to be directed by somebody different, George Seaton, right? George Seaton was supposed to direct. It was supposed to be produced by William Perlberg. The screenplay yeah. was supposed to be by Henry Denker, but then Nathanson didn't really like Henry Denker's screenplay, so he decided to take a crack at it himself. He was going to try to write the screenplay himself. But I guess because Nathanson took so long to try to write the screenplay, both Seaton and Perlberg had to go on to a different project. This film, 36 Hours, I guess they were making. Is that about accurate? Right. Yes. They finally landed on, when Ken Hyman took over the yeah. project, they finally landed on Nunnally Johnson. And yep. it's interesting, uh, the CEO or head of production at MTM didn't want Nunnally Johnson. Nunnally Johnson was a very, very well-known screenwriter. Yes. And he had one... He was nominated. The head of MGM, yeah, but the head of MGM thought of Nunnally Johnson as a comedy writer because oh, he had written yeah. How to Marry a Millionaire yeah. and a few other more recent comedies in the 50s. And Ken Hyman talked him into it by going, this guy won the Oscar for The Grapes of Wrath. Not exactly a yacht fest, okay? <laughs> I think he could do a damn good job. And they were, fr- and they were friends. Yeah. So Ken Hyman suggested Nunnally Johnson, and Nunnally Johnson got the gig. And Nunnally Johnson, I mean, this film is not without humor anyway, to be honest. But, oh, absolutely. Yeah, and then Ken Hyman, as a matter of fact, we should mention Ken Hyman. He was the fellow who produced the Hammer horror films. I feel like that was his big claim to fame before The Dirty Dozen. And he, Well, actually, that and the fact that he produced Whatever Happened to Baby James. Ah, uh, yes. Before The Dirty Dozen. And that's why he kind of looked to Robert Aldridge because he had worked with him in Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. So he wanted exactly. him to come on and direct The Dirty Dozen. But then, of course, Robert Aldridge, he didn't like Nunnally Johnson's script that he had written, spent all this time writing, and he didn't like it at all. I think it's because Robert Aldridge, as you say, is a little anti-establishment, and he likes to have that sort of feel in his films. And he didn't have that feel from the script of Nunnally Johnson, so he kind of wanted to bring his own scriptwriter on, which was Lucas Heller. I was able to access the memos from the making of the film when it was in pre-production, during production, post-production. And in pre-production, Aldridge wrote to Ken Hyman and said, look, this is a really good script for 1946. Yeah. Okay? This is going to be 1967. Yeah. He said, the script Nunley wrote is ice cream. We're dealing with cancer here. Yeah. I mean, his metaphors were wonderful. I mean, he hit the nail on the head. He had worked with Lucas Heller several times, so he brought in Lucas Heller to do a rewrite. Right. And Nunley Johnson was extremely pissed off about that. He didn't like it at all. And he went to the Writers Guild for arbitration. He wanted Lucas Heller's name taken off the script, but he lost that fight. Years later, I always love this quote, years later, not only Johnson was asked if he's ever seen The Dirty Dozen, and he said, no, and I never will. It's kind of like being an expected father in the waiting room and being told the father might be somebody else. Oh, well, I mean, you can sort of see his point. He must have spent a great deal of time writing the screenplay and then to just have it snatched away. But let's start to talk a little bit about the plot of The Dirty Dozen, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, Oh, of course. It starts out, I guess you don't call this a prologue. It's just a, a scene before the credits. But in 1967, I don't think it was that common to do these kind of scenes before the credits. So this was a little bit of an innovative thing they did in this particular film. Yeah, and yet it was something that Aldridge did in almost all of his films, even before The Dirty Dozen. And the sequence you're talking about is a prologue. That's exactly what it okay. is. Neil Marvin's character, John Reisman, is uh, forced to witness a hanging yep. of a convict. Yep. And then he leaves and gets catcalled from all the other prisoners. And then he goes to the meeting of what he finds out his order right. about having to train 
these convicts. And, oh, that's another thing, another urban legend, that it's been said incorrectly in film history that Lee Marvin's character picks the 12. In the book, he does, mm-hmm. not in the movie. He gets given the files and said, these are the 12. Yeah. You have to train them. And at one point in the film, Ralph Meeker's character, who yep. plays the psychiatrist, says, look, let me weed out the really bad ones. Yep. And Lee Marvin says, no, the Army picked this starting yep. lineup, and w- and this is what they're going to get. Yep. So, I mean, it, it's an interesting little side thing. And, and one of the things I loved about that opening scene, when you see all the officers around this desk, and Ernest Borgnine is the commanding officer, he's the general, mm-hmm. and it doesn't play out like some official military meeting. It plays more like a corporate office meeting, okay? They're all around this long conference desk, and they've been billeted in some rich British guy's home, and you see Borgnine walking around while everybody else is talking, and he makes some lame joke, and everybody at the table laughs. They have to. He's the boss. Yeah. They're all yes-men to his CEO. Everybody laughs, of course, except Lee Marvin. Right. Because Lee, he's a renegade. He's the rebel. Lee Marvin's the rebel. But right. what I really thought was very, perhaps, moving, or I don't think moving is the right word, but it's sort of emotional, I guess, in that first scene is just the seeing of the hangman's noose. I thought that yep. was very effective. And I thought that <laughs> beginning scene was just a really effective way to start the film. And you already are starting off in kind of this bad feeling because you've just witnessed the hanging so you're already have an emotional reaction right at the beginning of the film and then I really really love what he does with the credits and right here is what I really enjoy about some of the score the very beginning when he's going through and listing the crimes of each of the prisoners and showing them in close-up and they have that kind of dun dun they don't say the crime what they do is they say the name of the convict and what his punishment, what his punishment. Is. yeah you're right my mistake on that but yeah it has kind of like this dun dun right. sound to the, to the score i like that beginning too because you get introduced to all the characters and you get a right. little view of the characters and even in their close-ups they're giving you a little touch of their personalities each of them you're i right. think it's a really Absolutely. nice job by the actors the thing you said about the opening scene of uh marvin having to witness the hanging yeah that, by the way, was in the book. And the guy who was being executed is named Enos Gardner. And it's about a, the first hundred pages of the, of the book. It's all about him. They did what he did in the book when he's being hung, which is to just kind of cry and say, mm-hmm. I'm sorry. And the camera angle is brilliant. They show him dropping mm-hmm. from the, the bottom of the floor, looking up at the gallows. And you see his body drop. And my favorite part of that is Lee Marvin's face when he just witnessed it. He's not happy about having to do this. No. And then he happens to look over by the chaplain who's reading a Bible verse, muttering it to himself. And he gives the guy the dirtiest look. Yeah, he does. Like, you think this is gonna help? Yeah. And then he just storms out. I, it's a great way to set the tone of the film. Yeah, so I guess maybe we I can- I just wanted to throw that in. Yeah, no, that's too. fine. And then I guess maybe we can sort of praise Michael Luciano, however you say his name, uh, for the right. editing there. The editing really good in that particular scene. These high angle cuts, these slow mounted cuts that you talk about in your book. Can you right. explain those a little bit more? Obviously based on Aldridge's instructions and the, and the film was in post-production for quite a while based on the editing. But also too, there was a certain sense he was trying to give the audience, and he would do a lot of shots, which you called high angle, and he would do that to get the effect of being in prison mm-hmm. and, and rather claustrophobic. In fact, the very first prisoner Marvin interviews, you see the angle is from the top of the cell, and then they do this real quick zoom close-up 
Uh, I believe it was Charles Bronson who we spoke to first. He doesn't have any shoelaces in his boots. He spoke to Franco first. Franco, first. thank you. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and I think they showed the same thing. Yeah. And by the way, that scene is one of my all-time favorite scenes in the movie. I love that scene. But anyway, he does that throughout that sequence. There will be angles from you're outside the jail cell looking in, either yeah. either from the door, from the top from the opposite wall of who the person is he's talking to, and it gives a kind of a claustrophobic effect. And the sound, that's another thing, the sound is great in that yes. you hear their voices echoing in the jail cell, and it's a wonderful effect. And there's all kinds of great things like that throughout the movie. It's really technically brilliant in a lot of ways. Yeah, so the way maybe, it's cut, the way it's shot, the way yeah. it's acted, all of it. Yeah, so maybe that's another reason why when I was questioning about the sound effects, maybe that's another thing that they took into consideration, what you were saying about the echoing voices. That's possibly something else. Let's. Totally, uh, yeah. So you did kind of briefly talk about how, first of all, they have the scene where they're introduced to the prisoners. And right away, Franco starts acting up. Franco played by John Cassavetes, which John Cassavetes was nominated for an Academy Award for this performance. And I mean, I'm a huge Lee Marvin fan. You know I love Lee Marvin. And, and I'm all about Lee Marvin, but I think John Cassavetes is the best thing in this film. You're not going to get an argument out of me. I loved him in that movie. He was so great. And ironically, lost the Oscar to his yeah. 30 dozen co-star, yep. George Kennedy. George Kennedy. Who had a loop. Yep. George Kennedy, very good, too. George Kennedy wanted to play Telly Savalas' part at first, did he not? Maggot. Yes, he did. And he got told by all, because he had worked with Aldridge a few other times. And Aldridge told him, look, I can get Tilly to do what I need you to do, but you're better suited to play arm booster. Yeah. And George Kennedy said he was very complimented by that. Oh, he liked that. Good. Although I'm sure he could have played Maggot. Well, <laughs> you if, if, you see, if you've seen him in Charade, he's so menacing and frightening in Charade, he can certainly play that sort of menacing, frightening, deranged person. Right. Oh, and he was, I don't remember the movie, it was another uh, Joan Crawford you know, shopping horror <laughs> movie that he made in the early 60s. I don't remember the name of it, but he played a really bad guy. Yeah. He was psychotic in that He's film. very good at playing so that. So he could have played Maggie. Yeah, he's very good at playing that. My personal favorite thing George Kennedy ever did was when he played Joe Petroni in Airport. I loved him in that. He was great. <laughs> yeah, he's a great actor. Hey, Well-deserved to have won an Academy Award, in my opinion, even though he did beat out our boy John Cassavetes, who we like so much in this film as Franco. But Franco right away is... It's funny. Once they once they started filming the movie, I'm sorry. Once they started filming the movie, like a day or two into it, Trini Lopez told John Cassavetes, "You're going to get an Oscar for this." And Cassavetes was kind of get the hell out of here. No. I'm get an Oscar, but you wound up getting nominated. Yeah, I wish he had, but you know. Also, John Cassavetes didn't want to do this film. He was kind of forced into doing this film because That's he right. wanted. He had this sort of Orson Welles-ish thing where he had to act in films to get money to produce his own films. This is sort of an Orson Welles type thing that he did. So he kind of needed money yeah, for his was, films. Right, and this was the first time he had done it. He had made other films before. He had acted in other films before, but he never used the money previously to finish the films he was working on or even make the films he was working on. Ken Hyman was the one who talked him into it. Ken Hyman told me, he goes, look, John Cassavetes is a wonderful actor, terrific director, pretty good writer. But he's also a pain in the ass, <laughs> is, is how he put it to me. He goes, he said, I practically had a fist fight with him to get him to do the part. And one of the things that kind of forced him into doing it, because he didn't like it. He read the script, he didn't like it. And he said that he was being sued by Universal. Yeah. Don't care so ready for 
work he needed to do and didn't do, and he was kind of uh, blowing his contract. He had also been blacklisted in Hollywood mm. because of a project he did with Stanley Kramer. And he said he didn't work for two years because of that. The phone stopped ringing. And so Ken Hyman said, look, John, make our movie, take the money and finish your yeah. movie. And that's exactly what he did. He made the movie Faces. Thank goodness. And, yeah, that got several Oscar nominations too. And it not only set the path of his career, He's been called the grandfather of American independent filmmaking. Yeah. Everybody followed his lead, and it started with him. And the success of Dirty Dozen had on everybody's career involved in the film was absolutely extraordinary, amazing. Everybody's career took off like a rocket. Except Trini Lopez, at least not his, his, yeah, his acting well, career. <laughs> not right. his acting well, career. There are several stories about how that happened. And yeah. almost all of them involve Frank Sinatra, believe it or uh, not. We'll get to him. All right, back to the plot. Okay. Franco, is he's very rebellious. He he doesn't want to drill. Lee Marvin is make, trying to make them drill. He doesn't want to drill. Lee Marvin pretty much takes him aside and kind of threatens him. And then they get into a tussle and he smashes him in the jaw with his foot. And then after that, it sort of cuts yep. to Lee Marvin interviewing the different prisoners and saying, look, here's the deal. This is what I have for you. And again, this is when you get sort of fleshed out a little bit more what the prisoners have done. And you only see four or five of the prisoners, but it's the main characters. It's John Cassavetes, right. it's Telly Savalas, it's Jim Brown, and it's... Bronson. Yeah, Charles yeah, Bronson. Charles Bronson. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, right. you get your main guys there and you right. get a little bit of knowledge of what their crimes are. And then you start to see, again, their personalities. Right away, you see Maggot's personality. And I think Telly Savalas does a great job of portray so yeah, portraying Maggot as this horrible psychopath. And this laugh he does is so creepy. This laugh yeah. he always does. I just, I when I see him, I just it, like... It's so funny because you know what a dangerous person this guy is. And he has this high-pitched girlish giggle, yep. which is even more scary. It, yeah. Um, and it's interesting about his character. In the novel, he was three different people yeah. in the novel. There, he was three of the different convicts, and they put him all in one, and it still works. Yeah, He's a religious fanatic, he's a sexual deviant, and he's a, a southern bigot. Those were three different people in the book, but it's all maggot in the movie. Yeah, he does a really nice job. So he's talking to the prisoners. He's explaining they can avoid their sentences by coming and doing this mission with him, which is, I guess, this is the whole point of the film. These prisoners are given a chance to not be executed so that they can come and do this mission with Lee Marvin where they go and they're attacking the Germans in the super secret mission. So he sort of gets all the prisoners together and, you know, gives them the what for and tells them, that lays down the law, tells it like it is. And in this scene, we do see some of the MPs and one of them, right. one of them is Bob Phillips, right? This guy was brought yep. on mostly, I mean, first of all, he's brought on to act, but also he was brought mm -hmm. on as a secondary role to sort of babysit Lee Marvin. Keep right. him out of trouble. That's absolutely right. <laughs> I spent an entire day with Bob Phillips. Wondrous experience. He was a really trippy guy. He had a hell of a resume. He was a Marine self-defense instructor during the war, during World War II. He was also a pro football player. The best of all was he was a Chicago cop. Yeah, he's and a policeman. And he was also the personal bodyguard of Governor Adley Stevenson. Wow. So he was working out in a gym one time, and a producer said, you know, you're pretty well built. Have you ever thought of becoming an actor? And Bob Phillips said no. And he goes, look, here's my car. Take some acting classes. When you do, we'll do a screen test. And that's how he became an actor. Yeah, and his role was supposed to be they, much bigger, wasn't it? Originally, and it is in the novel. His character, Corporal Morgan, Morgan, is a very important character in the novel, all of which was thrown out. But he wants to become the go-between between Robert Ryan's character and what is supposed to be a secret mission. He's leaking information to Robert Ryan. In the film or in the book? 
In the book. In the book. Yeah, it's I was going to say, not in the film. The one thing they don't, yeah. There are a lot of question marks in the finished film because of the way Robert Aldridge decided what's important and what's not important. One of them is, how does Robert Ryan even know where the hidden outpost is when yeah. you're training? He just shows up. Okay, in the book it's explained. Yeah, because there's also, a there's a lady or something that in the book, a, a lady right, that he's lady sort Margo. of... Yeah. Actually, a couple of other female characters in it. There was a bartender named Tess, a barmaid. All of that was taken out. When, at the time, the movie was made the year before they created the Motion Picture Association of America, which gave movies alphabet ratings, you know, G and PG and all that. Yeah. And so there was still censorship in yeah. filmmaking. And the censor said, you've got to take that whole thing out about John Reisman and Tess, the barmaid. It's gone. And they had problems with a lot of language in the movie, too, in certain scenes. Yeah. So... I think that's one of the reasons why the movie may have been edited in a way that leaves some questions. And if I may, yeah. one question that used to drive me crazy, during the war game sequence, and they're about to capture Robert Ryan's outpost, you see the dozen that are there in the headquarters, they're passing these little metal cylinders to each other. Yeah, yeah. And Ernest Borgnine sees it, he's visiting, he sees it, he laughs to himself, gets up and leaves. I've never known what that was until I read the script. I was able to get a copy of the script. At first, I thought they were thermometers. Yeah. I didn't know what they I were. I thought they were like fuses or something, Why? some sort of fuses. What does that have to do with it? Yeah. Well, you're closer than what I was thinking. They're called pencil timers. They're little explosives. And you set them to like five or ten minutes by twisting the head of it. And the only reference made to that is when Bronson tells Jim Brown that when they're going to take off, Bronson tells Jim Brown, we're going to do this. And if this doesn't work, we're going to take a whack at Plan B. Well, that's what Plan B plan was. Plan B was to just blow up. That's the yeah. only reference to it. Yeah, right. yeah. I you did. Know, some things like that. There are little spots there where you're kind of like, how did this happen? That would have been explained better if they had kept in a lot of right. different stuff. Back to what I was right. saying about Robert Phillips or Bob Phillips is they brought on another actor. They pushed a lot of the stuff that he was supposed to do in his role off on this other actor, Richard, is it Jackal? Jackal. Yeah, they kind of added this character because Aldridge really yeah. liked this fellow and he kind of added this character. And I think Bob Phillips was a little bit upset about that, that he had had so much of his role taken out. But you can see Bob Phillips in almost every MP scene. He's standing there. He just doesn't ever right. hardly get to speak, <laughs> but he's there. But yeah. He does have a couple of lines and one of the lines he was most proud of, he actually ad lit when he sees Jim Brown in his cell and he goes, hey, Midnight, yeah. if you're a good guy, we might let you eat with the white folks. And Bob Phillips told me that and he said Jim Brown's reaction was natural. He didn't know Bob Phillips was gonna say that and he picked up his plate and yeah. Said, yeah. And Bob Phillips said he was very proud of that ad lib. <laughs> yeah. And also that line I used as a chapter heading, Bob Phillips told me he actually said that. Oh, really, the one about really Charles Bronson Charles Bronson. Said, yeah, that's so good. Say it, say it. Right, yeah, because when Bob Phillips was hired and read the script, like you just said, he had a bigger role. When he flew to England and saw the script of Visions, his role was much smaller, and he was very upset by that. And John Cassavetes gave him a piece of advice. He said, look, when anybody asks you how this movie's going, don't complain, don't say anything bad. People haven't seen it. Say it's the greatest movie ever made, and you'll get more work that way. And Bob Phillips says, Johnny was right. 
That's exactly what he did. And then Army Archer was on the set, and he asked Bob Phillips about his role in the movie. And that's when Bob Phillips said, Charles Bronson has more lines on his face than I have in this movie. Yeah, that's great. And I used that as a chapter heading. Yeah, that's really funny. And Bronson confronted him. He went, did you really say that? And Bob Phillips went, no, the reporter made it up. <laughs> <laughs> well, Bronson doesn't seem like, based on what I've read from your book, that he was a very friendly fellow. He seemed like he was kind of a not super pleasant guy. Well, he was friendly to me. I got lucky. I think I got introduced to him through Rod Taylor, whom I had introduced for the Lee Marvin book. And a lot of what he told me about the Dirty Dozen went in the Lee Marvin book, but there was a whole lot more he told me about the Dirty Dozen that didn't, so it went in the Dirty Dozen book. And one of the things he said to me, he goes, you know, I have no idea why I'm such a mean son of a bitch. I just don't know why. I, I grew up, I had wonderful parents, I was happy growing up. He goes, but for some reason, I just get real mean all the time. I was like, okay, just don't get me with me. He's a fun guy. Well, he was fun with you. Not a lot of fun yeah, with right. other people. So we'll get back here with what's going on in the film. Everybody's decided to go. They start out by taking them to this grassy field and saying, basically, build your own barracks right. and get everything together and you're going to do your training. And they start doing this and they do all this training. They build the barracks. And of course, Franco tries to escape and he is stopped by Jim Brown's character, whose name is Robert Jefferson. And... Uh, yeah. Also, R.T. Jefferson. Yeah, and also... In the, in, the book, in the book, his name is Napoleon, Napoleon White. Napoleon White, yep. And also, he stopped by Charles Bronson playing Joseph Wadislaw. Wadislaw, yeah. So he stopped by them because Lee Marvin had told them in the meeting that if one person escapes, they all get sent back. So they have this right. idea, like, we don't want anybody to escape because we don't want to be sent back. Again, Franco is just causing a lot of general problems around everywhere. He's rebellious. In a way, he's like a copy of Lee Marvin. Right, except he's worse. Yeah. Lee Marvin's character might be rebellious, but he can take orders. Right. Franco can't and won't. And by the way, there's another tiny plot hole there. When he's cutting the wire, yeah. okay, when they're, making, when they're putting the fence up and he sneaks the wire cutter into his jacket, that would never happen. You know why? <laughs> In the book, every single time they have to use any kind of tools which could be used as a weapon, they all have to be counted. Inventory. For. All of them. Yeah. Constantly. That happens throughout the book. He just sneaks it into his jacket like nobody would notice. Yeah, so I think that that's... You, I just wanted to throw that out No, there. that's fine. I think that's kind of why Major Reisman, although he thinks Franco is a pain in the butt, you see there's a glimmer of respect for him. He likes him for being a little bit rebellious. There's a point in the time when Ralph Meeker, who plays the psychiatrist... Right, right. His name is Captain Stuart Kinder. He comes in to sort of evaluate everybody. Kinder, right. Yeah, and Lee Marvin says something along the lines of, oh, I love that Franco because he's worried they're not gelling as a team. And Franco rebels against bathing in the field because they don't want to bathe in cold water. And he gets all the, the rest of the dirty dozen to stand up with him. And so Reisman's really happy. He's like, yeah, good, they're gelling as a team. And that's why they are called the dirty dozen because they start getting all filthy because they won't bathe in the field. Or shave. Yeah, I love the scenes with Robert Ryan when they have to go do the parachute training at Robert Ryan and, and we should mention Robert Ryan plays Colonel Breed who was or is Major John Reisman's supervisor who obviously they don't get along there's not really explained why they don't get along but they clearly don't get along. Well once again that's in the book and there's a specific reason why they don't get along and that wasn't even really necessary to put in the film but it's an interesting story in and of itself. Also too one of the things several people told me even though the movie was made over 60 years ago there were some people who still survived and i was able to interview them and one of them told me that lee marvin was on record as loving working with john cassavetes 
He thought Cassavetti was terrific. He was very inventive and creative. And, and he would, uh, how did Marvin put it? Every time we do a scene together, he gives me something to go on. He goes, not a lot of actors are that good. And when you see them together, you can tell. John Cassavetti gets to be smug and sarcastic, and Marvin just gets to beat him down <laughs> verbally. And in the beginning of the movie, in one case, physically. Yeah. So they had great, great chemistry working together. And like I said, I love, like Reisman, <laughs> boy, do I love that Franco. Yeah. He was terrific. Yeah, and this is a scene I really like when they come to the parachute training and Robert Ryan plays this very insufferable character, which poor Robert Ryan was always playing these kind of characters. He's just <laughs> smug and awful and you just hate this guy. And I love how the band guy keeps trying to play. Right. It's actually very Not funny. Now. Yeah, it's actually a really funny scene because then he's claiming there's a general. This is another part I really like. He's claiming they have a general with him. So they have this band for the general and they have this troops to inspect and they don't really have a general. So Major Reisman has to go in the back and he has to pick one of the guys and he picks Donald Sutherland, who plays Vernon Pinkley, but he wasn't actually supposed to be the character that was picked. It was supposed to be Samson Posey, which was Clint Walker's character. He right. was playing a Native American. He thought a Native American wouldn't be acting as a general. What was that? What was his reason? Well, luckily, I was able to interview Donald Sutherland. Mm, love um, him. And yeah, me too. And a great interview. He told me stuff nobody else would have known. And I was <laughs> lucky for that. And he told me that they had a two-week rehearsal period before yeah. they started shooting, yeah. which is rare for movies. And but Robert Aldridge apparently always did that. He didn't want anything on film that wasn't prepared in advance. So during the rehearsal period, when they came to that part of the scene, Clint Walker let it be known. He thought it was demeaning to Native Americans, and he didn't want to do that. He didn't want to demean Native Americans or get them angry at him. So Aldridge literally just looked around the table, saw Donald Sutherland, and he goes, you with the big ears, you do it. And he did. And what's interesting is that one scene literally made Donald Sutherland's career. It was from that scene he got the role in the movie MASH of Hawkeye. Yeah. Because he sent that scene to Robert Altman. He let him see it because Altman didn't know if he could do comedy. When he saw the scene, he went, okay, you can do comedy. Yeah. You're going to be my Hawkeye. So everybody got stuff out of that movie. Yeah, I have to say, I think you really have to give him a lot of credit. Donald Sutherland, he had this tiny little role and he wasn't even supposed to have that many lines in the beginning, but because of his own ability. Right. There's only line? Number two. Number two. <laughs> Number two, sir. <laughs> Number two. Right. I asked him because it wasn't in the book. He never said what Pinkley did. And he said, well, because I'm an actor, I had it in my head what he did, what he got arrested for, and what his term would be yeah. and why. And he told me he figures Pinkley got arrested for stealing food, <laughs> which isn't that big a crime, but he figures they want to make an exception of him. And so he gets, I think, like 30 years hard labor. Yeah. And he also told me, too, that he put the whole thing in the movie projector in his head. He said, it was right behind my eyelids. I saw everything Vernon Pinkley did. So that's how I knew how to play the guy. And he was one of what was called bottom six. Yeah. There were six men of the Dirty Dozen, and the bottom six, almost every one of them had fewer little lines. And I did get to interview either the, the surviving six or children of the six. And that was interesting. And Donald Sutherland's performance, according to Robert Aldridge, was so good. Before the movie came out, Robert Aldridge memoed Ken Hyman and said, look, I know you guys have a PR campaign plan, and you're going to put everybody's name alphabetically in the credits. Put Donnie in there. Donnie can go right in between Telly Savalas and Clint Walker. Put him in. He's that good. Yeah. Now, the ad campaign had been started, but there was a secondary campaign, and Donald Sutherland was in it. 
Even he didn't know that. I showed it to him. Oh, and he just did a really good job of playing this sort of very stupid character. He has this kind of face that does well for stupidity, to be honest. And he was very goofy kind of guy, very clueless. Mm -hmm. People would say something and be like, what? And in that way, he was very comical. And he really stands out. He really stands out in the film to me. I mean, I love Donald Sutherland anyway. In the beginning of the film, John Cassavetes asked him, you like it here? And Sutherland goes, well, he could no place else to go. And Catherine goes, you're, you're an, an idiot. idiot. Yeah. <laughs> you idiot. Yeah. No, he, I he, love that. He has this very dopey way he talks throughout the film, too. But when I first saw this, I was most drawn to Donald Sutherland and to John Cassavetes. And of course, I already love Lee Marvin. I, of course, think Lee Marvin has a great presence as well. Anyhow, Robert Ryan sort of begins to realize that something is going awry, that this guy maybe isn't really a general. And so when they go back, <laughs> it goes back to that scene that you're talking about where he randomly shows up at their secret headquarters and he brings his men in there and he starts causing all this trouble and then he makes them all line up. He starts interrogating Donald Sutherland because he was the one that was the general and he's the only one he recognizes and he says, what's your name? And that's when he says, it's number two. You know, that's so funny. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and then... And Cassavetes jumps in. Yeah, you, yep. And he you, starts... You think you tell yep, him nothing. Yep. And he starts giving Robert Ryan a hard time. Robert Ryan tells him he's going to bathe in the field and he says no sir you know he gets real adamant about it and then the great thing is that lee marvin comes and he sneaks onto the thing and he goes up this ladder and he's got this machine gun he starts shooting everybody and everybody's hitting the ground and robert ryan's like what's going on and it's just such a great scene now think about this had marvin done what he's threatened to do when he tells him drop your weapons and all of his men does. But if they didn't, what would Marvin have done? Because he shoots a line of bullets right across Robert Ryan. Yeah. Would he have killed Robert Ryan? If he did, he'd be in prison. Right. He'd be killing a fellow officer. You know? He gets brought up again in front of the generals because of this kind of behavior. And also another reason is because he brought the truckload of prostitutes to give the men something to celebrate at the end of their training. He brings this truckload of prostitutes in. Right, uh, and I'll tell you something interesting about that. Nathanson did it in his book where Weissman brought in just one hooker for all (laughs) dozen. One. One, okay? Now, Nathanson said... Aldridge was a lot more generous than I was <laughs> because you know he That's tried to bring night. in a dozen, but I think I think he only brought in eight. Eight, eight. yeah, it yeah, says right? eight and in the phone. One of them, yeah, one didn't matter because Telly Savalas was on guard duty. Right, true. And Thank God, because they really wouldn't have wanted him in there. No, he would have just killed all the prostitutes. Anyway. That's another great scene. And yeah, that would have been really rough for one lady. I mean, I, that would have been a tough night. Right. <laughs> so anyhow. Very he, much so. Lee Mar- and that's, that's why Nathanson said, boy, Aldridge is more generous <laughs> than me. I don't know why Nathanson didn't think of that himself. Yeah. You know? But yeah. anyway. But then, of course, Lee Marvin gets in trouble again. He gets called in front of the generals and he gets reprimanded and they're trying to tell him they're going to cancel the operation and he's like no no and they come up with this clever plan as a matter of fact George Kennedy's character is the one that kind of comes up with this idea because he's saying that my men are worth 12 of Colonel Breed's men they're much better I can prove it and then they decide to do this war games thing and this scene I have Mm -hmm. to tell you is my most favorite scene in the whole film and I really also love the music in this scene I will say the sort of apple tree song or whatever I feel like it is that they're playing don't sit under the apple tree 
it's dun, such dun, dun, a cute dun, dun, yes dun, dun, it's so cute yeah. the way it fits so cute in the <laughs> scene it just makes the scene seem really light and lively and i really enjoy that mm-hmm. and it's such a fun scene the way they go in and they sort of do all this mission stuff and they make this plan and they're doing all these things that they're not supposed to be doing but it's just such a satisfying scene i love it so much it's like i said my favorite scene in the whole entire film cool very cool so what winds up happening is of course the dozen they do all these things and they wind up capturing breed capturing him in this game they wind up capturing him in his headquarters so then it said oh okay well they can do their mission then it cuts right to them at dinner and i think you made this comparison in your book which i think is so interesting about it looking like the last supper that's right not only is it the last supper in fact um, while they were filming it it it's called that the last supper scene riceman is seated where jesus was seated yeah and Maggie Kelly Savalas is seated where Judas was seated. Yep. I mean, it's interesting. Very symbolic. That, you know, it was a little kind of foreshadow. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Very much so. Yeah, so he's congratulating the men at this dinner and they're going over their plan, which has this little nursery rhyme that they do throughout. And you right. even have the whole nursery rhyme listed in your book, I think, which is pretty cool. Yeah, I think I did too. There was a guy, I don't know if you remember the character, Glenn Gilpin, mm. the character, and he was yep. played by an actor named Ben Carruthers. Yep. Now, I interviewed Ben Carruthers' son, and he told me when he watched the movie when he was a kid, and the scene where his father gets his leg stuck in the roof, mm. and he kills himself, he sets up the grenade, yeah. he goes, my brother and I went screaming out of the room, oh. I couldn't believe it. Oh. And one of my favorite little side facts about that movie, a lot of people don't know that Ben Carruthers was black. Yeah. He was a light-skinned black, yep. okay? And his son, Kane Carruthers, said, when I would tell people my father was in the Dirty Dozen, they would go, you're Jim Brown's son? <laughs> yeah. They, yeah. <laughs> they didn't know there was another black guy in the movie. Anyway, so that was just a little aside. I Yeah, I thought that was a really cute part. So as you referenced about him getting his foot stuck, they start their mission, they go to the chateau, which was this big monstrosity that they had to construct, which is another thing that took forever on the production. Yeah, because then they had to deconstruct it, not to blow it up. They did too good of a job. Yeah, The special effects department told the construction crew, we're going to need about 50 tons of dynamite to blow this thing up. And that really pissed off Aldridge. They had to take out the opening um, facade. They had to take the middle out and because it was all cement and they had to replace it with plywood and styrofoam. Yeah. So it could be blow up with just 10 tons of dynamite, which is what they wound up doing. These are kind of the things when you make a movie long before CGI, Yeah. everything in those days, they were called practical effects. I don't know how practical it is, but that's what they were called. So when you see things blowing up in that movie, they're really blowing up. One of the cast members, one of the lower six, a guy named Colin Maitland, mm-hmm. told me, Bob Aldridge gave us the instruction that when this thing blows, I want you to act like you're in awe of how amazing it was to see this thing go up. And Colin Maitland said, we didn't have to act. <laughs> All we did was see that thing blow up, and the looks on our faces are real. We did not think it would be like that. It was amazing. <laughs> yeah, this is something we talked about, the delayed production. The delayed production had a couple different effects. For example, Jim Brown was supposed to rejoin his football team, the Cleveland Browns, and yep. he wanted to continue making the film. And Art Modell, the owner, was giving him a hard time, and he actually wound up retiring from football, and he was right in the prime of his career because he yep. couldn't leave the Dirty Dozen, and he didn't want to. So that was an effect that happened. Yeah, Jim Brown had said years later that it didn't really bother him to retire from the NFL. Yeah. He said, look, we had won, you know, the Cleveland Browns that year had won the Super Bowl. He was voted player of the year. He had a solid 10-year career. He was 29 years old. So I didn't really mind. The only thing that bothered me and still does was 
that Art Hotel gave him an ultimatum. Ultimatum. You either come back or you get fined a thousand dollars a day. And later, Art Modell said thousand dollars a day. That's lunch money now. Yeah. But Jim Brown said that bugged me so much. I held a press conference on location and announced my retirement from the NFL. Now, what's interesting is you can't buy great publicity like that <laughs> nah. because sports writers were writing every single day in their columns. Will Jim Brown come back? Will he not come back? What's he going to do? And when he held that press conference and all the reporters were there, I'm sure everybody in the production of the film were smiling from year to year. It's like, ooh, how good could this movie be if it means that Jim Brown had to quit the NFL? Yeah, gave up football. This is going to be some yeah. kind of movie. When Jim Brown was kind of campaigning for the part, they actually were originally going to give this part to Sidney Poitier, but he turned it down. And when Jim he was considered, yeah, yeah, when yeah. Jim Brown was campaigning for the part, he said he should be given the part because he could run faster than any of the other actors. Well, no, he didn't say that. His agent, did, <laughs> oh, which I his agent, was really cool. sorry. Yeah. yeah, well, which is true. Robert Aldridge was a big football fan, and Jim Brown's agent read the script. This wasn't Jim Brown's first film, it was his second film. His agent's name was Phil Gersh, and he told Robert Aldridge, you really ought to consider Jim Brown for the role. And that's when Aldridge said, well, what the hell can he do besides play football? Yeah, and that's when Phil Gersh said, listen, he can run faster than any actor you've got on your set right now. And Aldridge went, okay, he's hired. And Jim Brown's take on it, well, he loved playing the character. He thought the character was great. He was a natural leader. He was smarter than most of the other people he had to deal with, but it was just a favorite role for him. And once again, even though it was only his second film, it set him off on a wonderful career in what would later be called black exploitation films. He was like the leading man in those films. Slaughter's Big Ripoff, so many of those films. And it launched his career, which is really cool. He does a really great job in this film. For I liked him on film. Yeah. I thought he was a lot of fun to watch. Yeah, for not having really been much of an actor, he holds his own very well in this particular film. And the other person that, again, the production delays might have affected was when we talk about Trini Lopez, who played Jimenez. He said he was only supposed to be on the shoot for three months, and then he was there for an additional four months. Supposedly, Frank Sinatra was telling him, ah, you've got to leave, blah, blah, blah. Whether that happened or not, we don't know. But he walked out on the film where he said, I'm going to walk out on the film. And so Robert Aldridge killed him off. And you said, or I read somewhere that it was sort of like a little poetic thing that he had this big hit at the time called The Lemon Tree or Lemon Tree. And so when they killed him off, they said he was hung up in an apple tree. So sort of like a little (laughs) inside joke there in a way. (laughs) Basically, we've gotten to most of it. Obviously, they start their mission at the Chateau, which I also think the Chateau sequence is really, really cool sequence. It does go awry. And one of the reasons it goes awry Rye is because first of all you wonder what well, yeah, why would why would we, but why would we put Maggot and Jefferson <laughs> together in their section? I mean, of all the people to team, why would we team those when clearly they're very antagonistic? Well, it's never explained. Yeah, it's very strange. Did you ever see the movie The Defiant One? Tony Curtis and Deportier. They play two convicts who are handcuffed together and escape. It's one of my favorite films. I love it. Anyway, there's a scene when somebody asks the sheriff who's trying to catch them, why would the warden do something like that? And the sheriff goes, because the warden's got a sense of humor. (laughs) Now, I think it might be the same logic behind putting Jim Brown and Telly Savalas together. Mainly, uh, the other reason being that Telly Savalas' character, Maggot, he never really falls in line with everybody else. Once they start congealing as a team and coming together as a team, you're never really quite sure about it. Ever. And so I'm guessing Lee Marmon's character figured if he gets out of line, the only guy who could really maybe control him would be Jim Brown. Yeah. You know, because 
they have a definite hatred for each other. And that's exactly what happened. So maybe there was some foreshadowing there. I guess you also kind of wonder why they would send him into the house of all people. Why not keep him in the field with the other guys? Why let him go where there could right. be civilians, women walking around? Well, yeah, absolutely. You can <laughs> certainly ask that. There's a lot of questions you could ask about the way things were done in that movie. I read a commentary by a guy named Captain Dale Dye. And Dale Dye is a technical advisor on a lot of war films. And his commentary was that he loves the movie. Yeah. He said, how did he play? He goes, you know, Lee Marvin could read the telephone book and I'm going to watch yeah. it. He's just that good. Yeah. And, and this movie's a lot of fun. Yes. But there are so many flaws. Yes. An amazing amount. When they land at the Chateau on this uh, commando mission, they should have bivouac helmets on. Not yeah. shiny green helmets <laughs> that reflect the light. So everybody can see them, you know? Here we are. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. And you made mention of some other things that are just blatant flaws. Yeah. And, and, and he said, if this movie was made today, I'd make sure those mistakes would not be in the movie. But that's the kind of stuff that happens. And the movie, I think, is so well paced. At yeah. three and a half hours, it moves so fast. You don't even notice these things. Some of the cars that are used, some of the weaponry. All are wrong, yeah. but nobody cares unless you're watching it a gazillion times. It's like watching old episodes of Star Trek. Oh, yeah. look, Lieutenant Hura has a run in her stocking. I didn't see that the first 30 <laughs> times I saw this episode. Yeah. You know, that's the kind of thing you just watch the movie yeah. and enjoy it. This is more of an entertainment type film. This is not so much it's like not. a documentary oh. style film where we're trying to be very historically accurate. We're not trying to do that. We're just putting an entertaining film out for the public. Exactly right. And at the same time doing that, the film also makes some very salient points about warfare and mm -hmm. interpersonal relationships and humanity. They're all there. It's cloaked in entertainment and comedy and action. But those messages are there, and I think it's very well done. Yeah. That's one of the reasons why I think it holds up so well to multiple yeah. viewings. You can watch it over and over again and still get things out of it you hadn't seen before yeah. or thought of. Yeah, and it's really a lovely film. We don't want to spoil the ending because the ending is very surprising and shocking. And if you haven't seen it, I think you'd be surprised by the ending. But we won't go further than to say that. Yeah, I will agree with you. I don't believe in spoilers, even if you give a spoiler alert. I've always said any film critic who reviews a movie and gives away the ending should be fired. Yeah. Because he's not doing his job. Yeah, because if, she isn't doing if somebody job. hasn't seen the only it. Thing I'll say, yeah, but the only thing I'll say about the end of the movie is that's where the title of my book comes from. And I'll mm. leave it at that. Well, Dwayne's book, Killing Generals. On Silver Screen Time Machine, Dwayne, I do a rating system, a one to five rating system where we just rate the films. Uh-oh. Yeah, it doesn't have to be very serious, but one being the worst, five being the best. What would you rate the Dirty Dozen? It's going to depend on the criteria used. It's overall production, acting, every aspect of production put in. So you're just judging the film as a whole. If you had asked me that question before I wrote this book, I would give it a five, okay? But having written the book and done the research that I did, extreme research, I would give it four and three quarters if that's a possible point system. To yeah, that's fine. And, yeah. Because it is flawed. It's flawed. And we, and we talked about the flaws. Yeah. But I personally am okay with it. It just keeps me from giving it a five. That's yeah. all. And I would give it a four. And I'm notoriously a little low. A four? Is that what you said? Yeah. Four. I'm notoriously a little low. Okay. I'm very perfectionist about things. I don't know if I love the cinematography as much as some other films. And plus the sort of holes in the plot where that doesn't make sense. Things like that. Those are just the little things I would penalize it for. The acting, I think, is superb. I really like the acting. I like the music. I think that some of the shots and the editing are really nice. So four is what
what I'm doing. And I think that's all the time we have for today, Dwayne. I want to thank you again for being our guest. We really do appreciate you taking the time. And like we said, we need everybody to pick up a copy of this book. Also his Lee Marvin book, Point Blank, which is very excellent. I personally recommend it. Thank you. And it's still very much in print, in hardcover and paperback. Yeah. So check it out. And thank you again for being our guest. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you, Wendy. Yeah. And from Silver Screen Time Machine, this is Wendy saying so long. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. Please don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok. And please leave us a comment or a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Intro and outro music composed by Heidi Engel. Artwork by Tyler Birch. Produced and edited by Wendy Wittick. Recorded at PCTV Studios, Pittsburgh, PA. See you next time. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.